Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 27. Kiss me again. Everyone agreed that the new tour had started nicely, but Charlie wasn't happy. The cause of His Majesty's displeasure was our pal Whimsical Walker, who was still finding his feet. You see, he'd never worked with a Carnot company before, and didn't quite grasp the rhythms and responsibilities of being a mere cog in a machine. He was used to being the centre of attention, and what's more, he was used to pacing his performance for audiences composed largely of children. Consequently, whenever it was Wimmy's turn to speak, the whole sketch would grind to a halt as he took his time and pulled his funny faces and shook his head from side to side as though he was wearing a hat with bells on and deliberately got things wrong to try and get an extra laugh. Most of us weren't overly concerned. He was an old hand, he knew his stuff, and he would surely get the hang of how things worked pretty quickly. And he was getting laughs, after all. Chaplin, though, was still livid at being lumbered with the old man and harangued him backstage every night. "'For goodness sake!' he exploded one night. "'The phrase you should say is ad libitum, ad libitum. Say it!' Wimmy frowned in pained incomprehension. "'Ad libitum,' he said. "'Exactly! What's so difficult about that?' "'Nothing at all. "'So why, why, why must you come out with this ad libitum, ad libitum, ad libitum, "'gurning away at the audience all the while like some sort of simpleton?' "'Wimmy couldn't see the problem. "'They were laughing.' They were laughing at you, you old fool, because you were getting it wrong. Well, what difference does that make? Wimmy shrugged. They're still laughing. Chaplin waved his hands in the air in exasperation. But why? Answer me this. Why? If the wow-wows are a bunch of incomprehensible old idiots, why would Archibald be so keen to join them? Why would he not run a mile and thank his lucky stars for a narrow escape and perhaps report the whole mob to the nearest lunatic asylum? Does it matter? Of course it matters. You're undermining the very premise of the sketch. "'All right, Charlie, calm down,' Stan said. "'We're all on the same team, remember?' Charlie snorted and allowed himself to be led away, leaving old Wimmy blinking at the rest of us. We knew Charlie had a point, I suppose, but it was the sort of thing that would naturally smooth itself out with practice, and everyone liked the old clown and was prepared to indulge him. That week in Cincinnati, I found myself idly thinking about Wren Hurley quite a lot. She had such a flirty way with her, and the most innocent interactions could suddenly seem laden with sexual import.' Just when I'd nearly convinced myself that this was all in my overheated imagination, I found myself lingering idly in the doorway of the men's dressing room. The ladies were changing in the room opposite, and the door had swung open so I could hear their chatter and see them milling about. Wren was there, and I waited for her to glance my way so I could wave a hello. She didn't seem to have noticed me, and was looking at herself in the mirror, checking the innumerable details that women do. Suddenly she slipped the robe from her shoulders and stood there in just a silk underskirt, quite naked from the waist up. Her back was to me, and she was concentrating on her reflection which was hidden by the door. As I watched, unable to tear myself away, she gathered up her long dark hair in both hands and piled it on top of her head, swaying slowly from side to side. 
I hungrily took in the line of her lovely smooth back, the curve of her slender waist, the flaring of her hips, the tantalising glimpse of SLAM! Emily Seaman had suddenly realised that the door was open and had darted over to slam it shut, but not before shooting me a withering glance and a loud tut. Now what was all that about? Was that a happy accident, or was that meant for me? Whichever it was, it fuelled my daydreams for quite a while, I can tell you. I turned to make my way along the corridor, and there, standing stock-still with a look of thunder on his face, was Edgar Hurley. "'Ah, uh, what ho, Hurley?' I said, flustered, but he didn't reply, and didn't move, just stood there staring darkly at me. I tried to pass him, but he would not yield an inch in the narrow passageway, and I had to press myself tight against the wall to get by. To escape his baleful gaze, I strolled off along the corridor, and happened to pass outside the theatre manager's office. I heard the tail end of a furious rant from inside before the door was flung open, and Charlie, red-faced and steaming, stormed out. He shoved past me and stomped away towards the dressing rooms. I looked into the room and saw Alf Reeves sitting there at his borrowed desk, his head in his hands, having just borne the brunt of Chaplin's fury. "'Shut the door, Arthur, there's a good lad,' he said with a sigh. I took a seat opposite him as he reached for a bottle of bourbon and a couple of glasses. It seemed that this was a two-finger problem. "'So what's up?' I prompted. "'Charlie wants me to send Whimsical Walker home,' Alf said, shaking his head sadly. "'What?' He says it's not working, says he's a liability, says his timing is all wrong, says he's too old and set in his ways to work at the Carnot pace. But we've barely been playing for a week, we're still running him in. I know. And he'll get it, you'll see, he was making people laugh before Charlie was even born. I know, I said all that. You're not going to do it, are you? You're not going to send him home? I was quite alarmed for the old clown all of a sudden. He was really on his beam ends, as he put it, and had nothing much to look forward to if he was sent packing. No, 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 not if I can help it. It's just hard to cope with Charlie in that sort of mood, you know. Don't worry, Alf, I said. We'll take Wimmy in hand, and this will all blow over. You'll see. Alf nodded, and I left, steaming about Charlie's antagonism towards Whimsical Walker. It was harsh, very harsh, to try and get the old chap booted out, and I wasn't best pleased about it. I hadn't forgotten how Charlie had managed to manoeuvre me and Stan out of the Carnot company, and here was another black mark in the ledger. However, I couldn't very well stick my head above the parapet, could I? Because if I found my name being mentioned in dispatches, then I would be for the high jump myself. So I set about trying to help Mr Walker fit more smoothly into the team ethos of the company. It was a task that needed handling with tact and delicacy. I say, Wimmy, can I have a word? It was the break between the matinee and the evening show on our last day in Cincinnati, and the old chap was touching up his makeup in the dressing room by himself. "'Of course, dear boy,' he replied. "'How may I oblige you?' "'It's this,' I said. "'You see, the rest of us have played this sketch many times before, "'and it's a tricky thing to pull off with fifteen people all on stage at once. "'It needs to work like... "'Well, the governor, Mr Carno, always says that a Carno company is like a well-oiled machine.' "'No problem there,' Wimmy said. "'As far as I can see, most of us are well-oiled most of the time. "'Eh? <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. <laughs> "'But you see, the thing that might sometimes gum up the works. I mean, what makes it hard for everyone is if somebody, here I mentioned no names but weighted the word significantly enough, I thought, insists on dancing to his own tune, as it were. Do you understand me? Wimmy stroked his chin thoughtfully and then nodded slowly. Yes, I think I catch your drift. You're saying that we're a team and there is no room for one person to simply indulge his ego. I sighed with relief. Yes, that's exactly it. Yes, thanks, Wimmy. And so, as the senior man, 
You would like me to speak to him on everyone's behalf. I was halfway to the door. Speak to who? Why, Chaplin, of course. Anyone can see he's not a team player. The whole thing has to revolve around him. He stamps on my laughs, flatly refuses to wait for me, and then rages at me afterwards as though I am in the wrong. Yes, it's high time somebody had a word with that young man, and now that I know everyone is with me, I shall... No, 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 Wimmy, please. You know, I believe there is the kernel of something good in there, but he needs to learn the discipline that comes of living and working for years in the business as I have. This will be good for him. You'll see. Learning to respect and accommodate one's elders and betters is an invaluable lesson for a young man starting out. I'll go and find him right now. I had to take him by the shoulders and sit him back down, as he was ready to go and beard Chaplin at once. I had the distinct impression that he'd been thinking about doing so for some time. No, listen, Wimmy, for heaven's sake. The most important figure in a Carno company is the number one. What he says goes, and that is Charlie Chaplin. But no buts, Wimmy. You have to do what he says. Speed it up. Find the pace of the sketch, because he wants to send you home. Do you hear me? Charlie wants to send me home? Home. So listen, no more funny faces. No more that might be funny, let's try that. No more look at me, I'm the senior man, or it'll be no more job. Am I getting through? Wimmy frowned. I see. I see. He mused. Good. Thank you. I see now what my mistake has been. It wasn't a mistake. Don't say that. It's just that it takes a bit of time to pick up the I have been too funny. What? Too funny. Oh, yes. Well, from now on I shall not be funny at all, and we shall see how young Mr. Chaplin likes that, shan't we? I groaned. I shall be human scenery, my friend. Never fear. And with that he began scraping away crossly at his white face makeup. As we had another show to do shortly, I could only think he was planning to perform without it. I decided to leave him to it. I'd done my best, and adjusting Wimmy to fit alongside Charlie was clearly going to take more than one awkward conversation. That evening, Whimsical Walker was less whimsical than I'd ever seen him. He performed his part with a downbeat functionality, and anyone who was used to watching his usual exuberant mugging must have thought he was playing some elaborate practical joke, or else he was seriously ailing. Certainly that's the conclusion most of the company seemed to have reached by the end of that night's wow-wows, and he received anxious inquiries on the way back to the dressing-room from Tilly and the girls. "'I am fine, thank you,' he replied, tight-lipped. "'Please do not trouble on my account.' Charlie bustled in and made a point of going straight over to the old clown. "'Much better, Walker,' he said, patting him on the back with awful condescension. "'Now you're getting it.' I watched him strut smugly along to the other end of the room and thought to myself, "'The day's coming.' I don't know when, but it's coming. The Carnot caravan rolled on up to Chicago next. On our travel day, I sat by myself in the boxcar, still fuming to myself about Charlie's treatment of whimsical Walker. There was a gentle rustle of skirts, and Wren Hurley slid in beside me. There was plenty of room for the two of us to share the bench seat, but she pressed right up against me as though there wasn't. I sat bolt upright, and my eyes darted around for her husband, who was sitting a little way off in conversation with Stan. It looked like Stan was talking him through the rummans from Rome, actually, and as I was looking at them, Stan got to his feet to act a bit out, which was making Edgar chuckle. Wren slipped her arm under mine and pulled it snug against her bosom. So, Arthur, she breathed, how did you like Cincinnati? Uh, agreeable, I managed. How about you? Oh, I should have liked it better if there'd been a little more sin. Do you know what I mean? I didn't really, but it sounded saucy, so I nodded and smiled. She glanced across at her husband, 
and then got to her feet, taking my hand in hers as she did so. I fancy a bit of fresh air. Why don't you keep me company? Um, all right. She led me through the dark props and costume compartment of the boxcar and out onto the observation platform at the back. There was a guard's van attached behind us this time, so we moved around to the side to look at the view sliding by. Wren shivered. Ooh, it's colder out here than I thought, she said. Give me a little warmth. She burrowed in close to me, and her dark hair blew across my face, filling my nose with her heady perfume. I wasn't cold, not at all. In fact, I was quite warm, and sweating rather freely. So, she said, I was wondering what you handsome young lads do about sowing your wild oats. I beg your pardon? Well, the company isn't exactly chock full of single girls, is it? That Tilly is nice, but Charlie has hooked her, hasn't he? Hmm, I said through gritted teeth. And little Annie Forrester is a bit on the young side. She is, I agreed. Well, um, since you ask, last time I was in Chicago, several of the lads struck up a rapport, as you might say, uh, with the dancing girls from a burlesque company who were sharing our hotel. Ah, Wren said, shooting me an arch look that made me feel like I was a major Lothario of some kind. And you? Did you strike up a rapport? An image jumped into my mind of Tilly pretending to be Clara, the burlesque girl. It was a good time, I said. Just at the moment, though, you are footloose and fancy-free, are you not? This came with a look of such coy suggestiveness that even a clot such as I could not miss it. I am, I said, and you are a married woman. I did not mean it as a rebuke, but to my surprise she suddenly looked crestfallen and began to cry. I felt her sobs shaking her shoulders. Wren, whatever is it? I said, not quite knowing where to put myself. I am a married woman, yes, she said, but Edgar has not been a husband to me for months now. What? I croaked, my mouth dry. Back in England we were touring in hilarity, and Edgar was number two to Sean Glenville. We knew that Glenville was planning to take a role in the West End, and he said he'd put a word in for Edgar. But when it came to it, Carno promoted Will Pulusky Jr. to number one, and we got shunted off on this trip instead. The word we heard was that this was more appropriate employment for a married pair. So you see, it's all my fault. No, no, I said. Yes. He blames me, he does. He thinks that if he were single, he'd have achieved his ambition, and now he can hardly bear to look at me, let alone touch me. Oh, come now, I'm sure that's not true, I said, thinking that if I were in Edgar's place I'd be hard-pressed to keep my hands off her. It is, it is, she wailed, and buried her face in my chest. I stood there, embarrassed and awkward, acutely aware all at once of the shape of her, the nearness of her. I patted her shoulder in what I hoped was a comforting fashion, and said, Perhaps we should... Go back inside. Wren seemed to compose herself a little then, and dabbed at her eyes with a lacy handkerchief which seemed to have sprouted from her sleeve. We slipped back into the dark compartment where the props and costumes were stored, and I began to lead the way through to the passenger half of the boxcar, holding her by the hand as I did so. Suddenly she pulled back, and steered me forcefully into a dark recess that lurked behind a rail of costumes. "'Hold me, Arthur,' she breathed clasping her arms behind my back and pressing herself hard against me. I... Oh, I said, my shoulders bumping against the side wall of the boxcar. I need to feel like a woman again, she murmured. Oh, we can safely say you're definitely one of those, I babbled. 
Fortunately, for the standard of the repartee at least, she turned her face up to me, stood on tiptoes and kissed me. Her mouth was warm and urgent and soft and firm and hungry and wet. After what seemed like an age, and yet suddenly not nearly enough time, she pulled back and gasped, worried that she'd gone too far. Well, I'm only flesh and blood, and I leaned forward and kissed her right back, and this time the kiss went on and on and on. My hands explored the thrilling curves I had glimpsed through the door of the dressing room, and she tugged at my shirt, her hands searching beneath for my bare back. There was a toot then from the locomotive far ahead, and a jolt when the carriages bumped together as we began to slow into Chicago Union Station. Hurriedly we separated, and quickly tried to straighten ourselves and tuck ourselves in. It was dark, though, and when we pushed through the curtain into the sunlit passenger half of the boxcar to rejoin our colleagues, Wren's husband amongst them, we must have looked pretty dishevelled. I certainly felt dishevelled. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 28. A Dish Best Served Cold It seemed as though we had got away without drawing attention to ourselves, somehow. Wren seemed as surprised as I was by the turn events had suddenly taken, and she kept her distance for the rest of that day. In fact, we barely spoke to one another that whole run in Chicago, although I did catch the occasional flirty glance in my direction. I thought about her a great deal. You can count on that. But she was not the only person of a female persuasion to preoccupy me that week. One night at the Chicago Empress... I peered lazily out across the footlights during one of Chaplin's interminable bouts of showboating, and my eye was suddenly taken by a spectacular vision, sitting majestically in the middle of the front row, like a proud galleon in full flow, breasting the waves. It was Lucia, the burlesque girl, there to see Mike Asher. Of course the sap was skulking in cowardly fashion back in the old country so as to escape her clutches. Anticipation had not yet turned to disappointment, but she kept glancing anxiously at the wings, waiting for her beloved to make his appearance. I couldn't help feeling sorry for the poor girl, gazing sympathetically at her cleavage as I did so, and I almost missed my own cue as a result. Afterwards, the theatre manager, a bearded fellow by the name of Baggist, popped his head into our dressing room and said, "'There's a young lady at the stage door who wishes to speak with one of your company.' I knew straight off who that was going to be, so I sighed and went to do my friend's dirty work for him. 
Sure enough, there in the alleyway outside the stage door was Lucia, pacing agitatedly up and down, brandishing a large, fancy white handkerchief in much the way you might if you were trying to communicate by semaphore. "'Hello there,' I said. "'It's Lucia, isn't it?' "'Chess,' she said, making it sound like chess. "'Please can you tell me, where is Mike?' "'I'm very sorry,' I said, "'but I'm afraid Mike is no longer with us.' "'Ay!' she screamed, clutching her heart. "'Madre de Dios! Mike! Mi amor!' "'No longer with the company, I mean. He's not dead. Please, calm yourself.' "'Ay!' she wailed again and began tearing at her handkerchief. It was quite alarming to see, especially as a number of passers-by had gathered at the mouth of the alley to watch, thereby no longer qualifying as passers-by, it occurs to me, and seemed to be more than ready to blame me for the lady's distress. Um, I stuttered, looking round for help, and then, miraculously, Tilly appeared in the doorway. "'You've got this all under control, I see,' she said, tartly. I waved my hands helplessly. "'Lucia,' Tilly said gently. I remembered then that they were friends, of course, and that Tilly had borrowed Lucia's burlesque outfit that night back in Chicago.' The memory distracted me for a minute or two, and by the time I began paying proper attention again, Tilly had got Lucia's heaving bosom under control. "'I'm sure Mike's quite well,' she was saying. "'He was the last time I saw him, anyway, but I'm afraid he's in England. Inglaterra. I'm sorry.' Lucia, tragically downcast, walked slowly away down the alley, and Tilly and I watched her go. "'Ah,' I said, "'the perils of romance, eh? "'You do all right for yourself, by all accounts. "'Eh?' That's what I hear, anyway. And she turned with a prim little flounce and went back inside. She was referring to my encounter with Wren, of course. How did she know about that? And if she knew, who else knew? Would any of them let something slip in front of Edgar Hurley? Or Alf Reeves, for that matter? Because it would be hard to think of a more flagrant example of moral turpitude than carrying on with another player's wife. What I really wanted to know, though, was... What did she think? Was she relieved? presuming that I was no longer pining after her, or was she regretting the fracture of our own romance, wondering what might have been, as I was? After Chicago, the boxcar headed for Winnipeg in Canada. I spent several anxious hours wondering whether Wren was going to come and sit beside me, but she didn't even so much as glance in my direction. She was clearly regarding our heated kiss and fumble as an aberration, and perhaps that was for the best, all things considered. I couldn't help feeling a pang or two of disappointment, though, even so. This time, when we got to Winnipeg, our boxcar was uncoupled from the train without any drama. It would have been hard for the Pantages crew to have pulled the same stunt twice, because Alf Reeves was wise to it this time, and he was not alone. Mr John W. Considine himself was at the station to oversee our arrival, accompanied by his English butler, Mr Jobson, who ghosted over and invited me and Stan to join his master for a little chat. "'I wonder what he wants,' I said to Alf. "'Whatever it is, you just say yes,' he said. "'He's the boss.' If he's got an idea for the show, say yes. He'll forget about it soon enough. If he wants help with something else, you do it. Got that? A little later, I found myself in the palm-filled conservatory of the Grand Hotel where Considine was staying. The man himself was holding court, Stan was opposite me, and Wimmy had come along too, partly because he fancied a cup of tea and partly because I was toting his bags for him. "'I'm mighty pleased to make your acquaintance, Mr Walker,' Considine said. "'I met these two boys on their first go-around for me, didn't I, fellas?' Stan and I nodded. That was when we had that bit of trouble with your railway car going missing, remember? What's this? said Wimmy. Mr Considine has a rival, I explained, a Mr Alexander Pantages. Calls himself King Greek. Ha! Considine snorted derisively. Well, when we were in Winnipeg before, this fellow Pantages, or maybe someone who works for him, Oh, he knew all about it, you can depend upon that! 
Considine cut in. He arranged for that boxcar of yours, with all your set and costumes in it, to remain coupled to the locomotive, and sent it off on a little expedition of its own to the Klondike. Ha ha ha! Wimmy left. This sort of thing was right up his street. He liked nothing better than a good practical joke. I wish I'd thought of that. What a terrific spoof! He cried. It wasn't a spoof, Considine protested. It was sabotage. Well, that's why I'm here now. It's payback time. Payback time, Mr. Considine? Stan asked. That's right. Let me tell you what I have in mind. This, you see, Winnipeg, this is the Greek's hometown. He's been building the showcase theatre of his whole circuit here. Brand new, grand opening, tomorrow night. He's invited me along just to rub my nose in it. Not really meaning for me to come, but I've turned up just to rub his nose in it. Ha! Excellent, said Wimmy. Do please go on. Now, he's been trumpeting this place all over the Midwest. It has the latest new-fangled air-cooling system. The idea is to make the theatre tolerable in the summer months, when we simply have to close some places down altogether because it gets so hot. There are these great blocks of ice from the Hudson Bay tucked away in the basement, and these great electric fans blow the cool air across them and up through big vents and into the auditorium. I've seen the designs. Same fellow designed a place for me in Spokane a few years back. He showed me them for a consideration. But it's November, I said. He'll hardly need to switch them on tomorrow night, will he? Oh, he will do. Don't you concern yourself about that. He wants the world and his wife to know he has the very latest doodad right here in Winnipeg. All the ladies will be wearing their furs in any case. He's planning quite a shebang, by all accounts. Considine looked off into the middle distance and began grinding his teeth. So what can we do for you, Mr. Considine? said Stan. I need your help, boys. I need your help taking the wind out of the Greek sails. Can I count on you? Sure, Mr. Considine, I said with a go-getter's grin, and Stan nodded along obligingly. I need you to break into the morgue. The... I spluttered. Morgue. The morgue. You limeys have those, don't you? I need you to steal a dead body and stick it in one of those there vents of his, and then on his opening night he'll start up those great fans and blow the stench of icy death right up the nostrils of Winnipeg's finest. Yes, by God, that'll do it, and that's what I want you to do. A dead body? Stan gasped. If only I'd thought of this sooner. I could have got Sullivan to send one from New York. He always seems to have a couple he's trying to get rid of. Stan and I gaped at one another and gulped at this sudden terrible insight into the man we were dealing with. It didn't seem like a good idea to disappoint him, that was for sure. Meanwhile, Wimmy was lost in thought, seemingly considering this lunatic plan. Just to be clear, I said, you want us to get hold of a dead body by breaking into the morgue. Yes, of course. Don't think of killing someone just for this. That'd be crazy. Crazy, Stan agreed. No, they'd be too fresh, see? You want a corpse that's really ripe. Considine rubbed his hands together with glee as Mr. Jobson glided alongside with a tray of drinks and began dispensing them. If I might suggest, sir, the butler ventured, a dead person would be found sooner rather than later and identified and and questions would be asked. The same might not be true of, say, a cat... "'That's right!' Wimmy cried, snapping his fingers. "'A cat might have wandered in and dropped dead "'without anyone thinking it was anything other than a tragic mishap.' "'Considine's brow furrowed. "'But then, will Pantages know it was me?' "'No,' Wimmy said. "'But it's the not knowing that will eat him up, do you see?' "'Considine brightened. "'That's right. He'll wonder, but he won't know. "'Boys, I think we're on to something.' <laughs>
The grand gala opening of the new Pantages Theatre was the following evening, and we had three shows of our own to do that day, so the only time we could really find what we needed was late at night, after the evening's shows were completed, and before we allowed ourselves to crawl into our beds. Wimmy was surprisingly bright and breezy as we set out through the darkened streets with an empty carpet bag apiece. The night time, he insisted, is the perfect time for spoofing. At the spooferies, the fun seldom began before midnight and rarely finished before the milk. We shortly decided to split up to look a little less suspicious, and to be honest, Stan and I both felt that if there was trouble of any kind, we had a better chance of a clean getaway without Wimmy to worry about. "'Happy hunting, boys!' cried Wimmy, and we watched him head towards some woods at the edge of town with a spring in his step that had been missing since his performance had been adjusted, shall we say, in Cincinnati. In truth, some of the old mugging and scene-stealing had been creeping back into the show, but not enough yet to provoke a reaction from Charlie, who was going through a period of not having anything much to do with any of us. A shame, really, as I'm sure he would have enjoyed scavenging in the alleys behind the restaurants of Winnipeg looking for dead cats. Stan sighed. "'Why ever are we doing this?' he muttered. "'Would you rather be breaking into the morgue?' I said. With a grim nod, then, Stan went one way, and I another. Over the course of the next few hours, I searched every back alley in Winnipeg, or so it seemed. I dodged every patrolling police constable, not wanting to explain why I was creeping about the place in the middle of the night with an empty carpet bag and the shovel from the landlady's coal scuttle, and I should think I startled pretty much every grizzled hobo in town. As the night wore on, desperation forced me deeper and deeper into the darkest recesses of the place, following the hint of foul stinks that I would ordinarily cross the road to avoid, and by the time I slunk back to my bed, I had acquired not only a decomposing dog, but also the rather fresher corpse of the raccoon that had been eating the dead dog, which I brained with a rather stylish off-drive from the shovel when it came at me snarling. Nice high elbow. Four runs all the way, I'd say. Back at our digs, I met up again with my comrades to compare spoils. Stan had managed to locate the reeking corpses of a matching pair of alley cats, while Wimmy the woodsman opened his bag with a triumphant flourish, unleashing a stink that made both our heads kick back involuntarily. "'Meet my good friend, the late Mr. Skunk!' he cried. Well, that was only the half of it, of course. The next day we had only a brief opportunity, between the second show and the third, to get the dirty deed done, and so as soon as the wow-wows came down that late afternoon, the three of us high-tailed it quick-smart over to the Pantages. Preparations for the grand opening were in full flow, and the new building shone with golden lights in the gathering dusk. We'd seen many new vaudeville venues in our time in America. Indeed, it seemed that they were springing up everywhere all the time. But of all the new sparkling pleasure domes we'd played, there was none to quite match the splendour of this new Pantages building in Winnipeg. All three of us pushed our hats back on our heads and whistled approvingly. The headline act for this special night was a sketch called Johnny's New Car, a perennial favourite of the time. A character called Johnny Flat Tire was at the mercy of a little red trick automobile with a mind of its own. It would stall as soon as it drove onto the stage, and then with every effort of Johnny's to get it going again, something would come off, or explode, or otherwise go awry. Flames would shoot from the exhaust, a geezer of steam would spurt from the radiator, and there'd be an explosion in which bits of the engine and the steering wheel would catapult into the air and come crashing down all around the hapless Johnny and his date, Katie Speedington, who would harangue him non-stop for his mechanical incompetence. The comedy was heightened by the blank countenance of the lead comic, whose name was Harry Langdon, and he got his laughs by reacting as little as possible to the chaos around him. We were looking forward to sneaking a peek at this turn later in the week. For now, though, 
We had a job to do, and so we hustled around to the stage door with our carpet bags and their stinking contents. We had agreed that Wimmy's role would be to distract the stage doorman so that Stan and I could slip inside to wreak our reeking havoc. The doorman was actually standing in the doorway looking out, and we ducked back around the corner. The stage door was halfway along the narrow alley, and at the far end we could see a portion of the queue waiting to be allowed in for the gala evening itself. Wimmy smiled to himself. Perfect, he said. Leave this to me, boys. He shoved his hands into his pockets and strolled with extravagant pantomime nonchalance towards the doorman. As he passed by, he raised his hat and bowed rather hammily, and I fretted that he was overdoing it. On he strolled, up the alleyway, beyond the stage door, until he came within range of the queue of theatre-goers. He bowed to them as well, ensuring that he had their attention. Then something seemed to catch his eye. He moved over to a door set in the wall of the theatre, and bent to peer in through the keyhole. This was all done in the most eye-catching and over-the-top style you could imagine, and yet people were transfixed. "'Good heavens!' he expostulated, stepping back in amazement. "'Who'd have thought it?' "'What is it?' someone called out, but Wimmy waved the inquiry away and moved forward to peer through the keyhole once again. After a moment or two, a few curious souls made their way up the alley to take a look for themselves, at which point, glory be, the stage doorman felt he should be taking charge and left his post unattended. Stan and I darted over to the door and nipped inside. We'd been in enough theatres in our time to find our way around, and we quickly slipped backstage, where we tiptoed around a little red automobile part there, not realising that it was Langdon's prop motor. Stan must have leaned against a hidden button of some kind, because the hood suddenly rocketed up into the air and came crashing down, clang, with a racket that would have awakened the dead. I whirled around to see if anyone was coming, and my bag brushed the side of the car, whereupon the exhaust exploded with a double bang, bang. Stan and I were screaming now, and promptly abandoned all attempts to sneak around quietly. We just pelted hell for leather towards the steps leading down into the basement. Halfway down, we were challenged by a stagehand who asked what we were looking for, but we pretended to be acrobats from the Ukraine with very poor English, and he quickly left us to our own devices. I think the odour emanating from our overcoats may have deterred further questioning. Downstairs, we paused to get our breath back and slow our galloping hearts, then managed to locate the room with the electric fans in. They were enormous and looked quite capable of blowing the pair of us right up into the theatre. Even though they were quiet just then, the room was freezing like a gigantic meat locker. Two gigantic slabs of ice, each the size of a hansom cab, lurked in the dark. They must have been slip-slid into place through two large doors to our left, having originated, if the pre-publicity was to be credited, in the Hudson Bay. Shivering suddenly, both with the cold and the terror of being caught, we located the slanting vents leading up into the auditorium itself. Stan, being narrower in the frame than I, climbed up onto my shoulders, removed the protective grille from the front, and disappeared up into the first of these passageways. I then passed up one of the bags so he could wedge the animal corpses into place. He quickly moved to the second vent and did the same, looking somewhat pale, I must say, as the smell was unbelievably foul and seemed to be permeating our clothes, our skin, our hair, our eyes. Outside in the alleyway once again, we found Wimmy and the stage doorman surrounded by a little crowd. Wimmy was saying loudly, "'What luck! Finding the door to the dancing girls' dressing room like that! Quiet, everyone, lest they hear!' Some chump stepped forward to take a peek while the stage doorman smirked and slyly shook hands with our friend. Another fish hooked. As we scuttled back to our own theatre, Wimmy was full of his successful spoof. 
You see, you get someone to peer through the hole, and when they see that there's nothing there, they first feel cross at being diddled, but then you persuade them that the joke is to see how many more can be made to fall for it, and thus the stage doorman became my accomplice as we spoofed the crowd. It was priceless. I once got the mayor of Dublin with the very same trick, and then he helped me to get Sir Randolph Churchill to squint through a hole for an absolute age, desperate to see what we said we'd seen. Ha! <laughs> We hustled up to the dressing room, and in the corridor outside bumped into Wren Hurley, who sidled over in her most flirtatious mood. "'Hello, boys. Whatever have you been up to?' she said, batting her gorgeous eyelashes. Then she caught a strong whiff of whatever we had been up to, turned on her heels, and quickly sidled away again. Stan, Wimmy, and I changed our clothes and scrubbed and scrubbed at the sink, but try as we might, we couldn't quite get the lingering aroma of late raccoon to leave us, and the staging of the wow-wows that evening developed some interesting innovations as our colleagues tried to create as much space between us and them as possible. By and large, we all managed to hold it together, though, until we reached the point in the scenario where Charlie was sitting on a stool, stuffing dry crackers into his mouth one at a time, filling his cheeks with dry crumbs and dust. The longer this sequence went on, of course, the more he was required to breathe through his nose, and try as he might, he could not ignore the foul stink that was assailing his poor nostrils. Suddenly he retched involuntarily, and a great cloud of biscuit crumbs flew from his mouth. This got a big laugh, as it usually did, of course, but ordinarily Charlie was in control of these eruptions. He convulsed again and again, until finally even he had to give best to circumstances and move on with the rest of the piece. As soon as the curtain came down, Stan, Wimmy and I grabbed our things and fled the building. "'I hope we did manage to sabotage that Pantages fellow's evening,' Stan said, "'because we sure as hell sabotaged ours.'" Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.